Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. Well, welcome, City Bridge. Happy Promotion Sunday. I am fighting off a little bit of something of the crud, so in case it sounds that way, it's because it is that way. But we are wrapping up a series called Sex by Design, and let me start by sharing uh, a, a little bit of some bad advice that I was given. In fact, this will especially be helpful to any singles inside of this room, and it relates to weddings. So when I was in college at Texas A&M, there you go, I got my very first wedding invitation that was sent just to me. And at the time I was, you know, like, I I think I know how to do this. You just kind of write your name and then you send it back. And I asked my roommate, hey, am I doing this right? And he said, basically you say, yes, I'm coming or no, I'm not. And then you put the number of guests that is coming. What he didn't clarify and I didn't understand is that the number of guests is not determined by you it is determined by the bride. And so you only put two people coming if you have been given a plus one and it designates for two people coming. So I just assumed that I could put whatever number I wanted to bring and go to the wedding with whoever I wanted to, no matter what it put on there. So every wedding that I have ever gone to in my life, I have always brought someone with me because even if I wasn't dating, I was, who wants to go to a wedding by themselves? You know, you got plans tonight, we can go to this wedding together. In fact, on one occasion, somebody wrote and sent me the invitation and on it, it had already marked the number of guests coming and it had one. And I crossed out the one and put two next to it <laughs> because I just assumed, man, who wants to go to a wedding by themselves? And so I would write in, this is who I'm going to bring. I have no idea how many bridezillas or fathers of the bride that I offended when I would show up having only been told to bring one and had another date with me. Now, what does that have to do with what we're going to talk about this morning? Well, in a very similar way that somebody either gave you bad advice or didn't explain the protocol and how this works as it relates to wedding invitations. There's a lot of confusion around another subject related to weddings, and that's what weddings lead to, and that is of marriage. That we live in a culture, in a world where a lot of people go through life and no one has ever explained, hey, this is how marriage works. This is how God created it. This is how God designed it. And so we're going to dive in and cover the topic of marriage and go back to God's created design for this. If you're single in the room and you're going, hey, I'm not married, might as well go head to an early brunch. This is probably the message that you need to hear more than any other. Because Not understanding God's design for marriage has led to a lot of pain, a lot of confusion, and will give you clarity as it relates to the spouse that you should go looking for as it relates to who you should marry, how you should marry, and God's design for marriage. So we're going to dive in and be in Genesis chapter 2. Let me say this. What I'm going to cover this morning is not popular. It is potentially not popular here. It's certainly not popular in our world but it is God's design for marriage. What he intended and what he created it to be. And we can add rules and change rules and rearrange definitions. But in the beginning, God created marriage and he designed it with great intention. So we're gonna look at three aspects of that design 
from God as it relates to what marriage was intended to be. So as I said, we're gonna be in Genesis chapter two. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screens. In fact, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible and you can get one as a gift from us at our Welcome Center. But either way, Genesis chapter two, starting in verse 21, will be up on the screen. And we're gonna look at three aspects of marriage by God's design. Going back to the very first marriage, starting in verse 21 of chapter two. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and he is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. The first thing I wanna highlight from this text is that God designed marriage to be the most important human relationship to be the most important human relationship. Now you may ask why I got there. At the end of the text, it says, this is why a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. I want you to think about the context that is happening there. Adam didn't have a father and mother. What is the author of Genesis trying to communicate? Well, he's giving the narrative of God's creation in man. And it's as though God's telling the narrative and then says, oh, by the way, let me step outside of the narrative and explain, this is why a man will leave his father and mother and step into this relationship that trumps every other relationship. It surpasses his relationship with his father, surpasses it with his mother, it surpasses it with his children. He steps into the most important human relationship. Now, the author's trying to highlight and make sure you understand that if you're married, the most important human relationship that you have is not with your children, it's not with your parents, not that those are not important and not valuable, but the most important preeminent relationship that you have, which is why he said, this is why a man will leave his father and mother and they step into this relationship that trumps every other relationship. The most important human relationship you have, if you're married, is that of your spouse. If you're single, this is why you can't be too careful as it relates to who you're gonna date, because dating's a path that leads towards the destination of marriage, and you wanna make sure that you're heading towards that destination with someone who has the characteristics God says to look for. Young adults, I heard it for years and years, of people saying, man, you can pick your friends, you can't pick your family. Here's the truth, you will pick your family. You are picking who will be the father of your children. You are picking who will be the counterpart of the most important human relationship that you can have. You can't be too careful as it relates to that because marriage is the most important human relationship that you'll have. If you are maybe older and you're in an empty nester phase of life, here's how this impacts you, not just directly with your own marriage, but maybe you are at a place where your kids are starting to grow up and they're getting married and they're having their own first kids. And understanding this should apply to how you interact now with your kids and their new marriage, that God has not just expanded your family, he's created a new family. And your kids and your daughter who married him, the most important relationship in her life is no longer with her mom or with her dad, it is with her husband. You have moved from immediate family to extended family. 
Now, how and why is that relevant? Well, I'm sure in this room, you know, this will just sound crazy, but maybe hypothetically you can imagine a scenario where a couple gets married and one source of conflict, again, I'm sure this has never happened here, but one source of conflict in that newly formed marriage is with the in-laws. The in-laws turn into outlaws and it creates division and conflict in the relationship. And maybe one of the ways that you can affirm and apply this in your life is by encouraging, hey, this is your new family. I know for years we always did Christmas together in Colorado and that's what we do. But now you have a new family. You guys need to decide what is right for your family. Not be the empty nesters who manipulate or try to guilt trip or do any of that because there's a new family. The most important relationship your daughter or your son has is with his wife and with his spouse. If you are young and married to embrace and encourage that and prioritize that, hey, You're the most important human relationship. More important than your relationship with your children is a relationship you have with your spouse. One of the gifts you can give to your children is by modeling and showing how the priority you have with their mother or with their father. It's the foundation that God's gonna use, the marriage, it's the foundation that really he uses to build the home. If you're in a season where you're buying a home, here's one thing, this may apply to you, just a little free advice. You wanna make sure that the home that you're purchasing has a strong foundation. My wife and I, 10 years ago, we were going and we were buying a home for the very first time. And I remember walking in and the home had like these cracks all over the ceiling and all over the walls. And the realtor explained, hey, those reflect the problems that exist in the foundation. And at that point, I'm like, well, how important is the foundation? I'm sure we could fix that. And he said, it trumps everything. If the foundation is off, it's gonna have some real ramifications for the rest of the house. And the foundation of every family and every home is to be the marriage because it is the most important human relationship that you will ever have. I remember a friend of mine, as it related to the empty nester thing, just a godly uh, mentor, somebody from Watermark was talking about how he sought to live this out. And he proactively, when his daughter got married and they had their first child, reached out and called and said, hey, I just want you to know, You guys plan whatever you want for every holiday and we will work around you. We're not gonna ask or try to guilt trip you into working in with us. We are going to work around you because the most important relationship you have is with your spouse. And to prioritize that, if you're married, that is the most important human relationship. But through that, God will bring about procreation as we saw last week in chapter one, God blessed them, said be fruitful and multiply. So that important relationship is how God expands humanity through procreation. And then we learn in Ephesians chapter five, which we'll look at here in a second, that it is also marriage that is one of the primary means of sanctification. Uh, And all God's people who are married said amen. (laughs) Sanctification, if you don't know, is the word that the Bible uses to be for a term of being made to look like Jesus. One of the chief ways that God will grow, sanctify, make you look more like Jesus, expose more of your sin is in the context of marriage. I remember when I got married to my wife, I like thought, man, I feel like I've got, you know, ducks in a row. I'm trying to follow Jesus. And, you know, I'm sure we won't have that much conflict. (laughs) Oh, I was incorrect. And I learned very quickly how one selfish I am, how many different opinions I have, how much clothes just get sprawled on the floor in a way that apparently is not good, how opinionated I am on that there is a right way to put dishes in the dishwasher, okay? It's literally designed for the plates to go in this little area, not just be thrown on top. 
And God just used it to just sanctify, continues to use it to sanctify and point out and grow blind spots. It's a gift in that sense. And Paul would say it's one of the primary ways God will sanctify you if you're married is through your spouse. I was talking to a friend who's engaged and very similarly, I had deep compassion because they were basically describing, hey, we're gonna get married in a couple months. And I feel like we've really done all of our prep work though. I don't anticipate it being that hard. Like we've gone through, we've done merge, we've really worked through and just thinking like every married person in here would hear when they say that, I'm like, <laughs> you have no idea. And God is gonna use that to grow you. So God in this important human relationship brings procreation, he brings sanctification. And then we're gonna fast forward to Jesus's teaching where he quotes from Genesis chapter two and one in Matthew 19 and see another aspect of marriage by design. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is asked a question, starting in verse three. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Hey, is it okay for a man to get a divorce for whatever the reason is? And Jesus responds, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, quotes Genesis chapter two, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus shows us another aspect of God-designed marriage. He says some very controversial things for 2023. He says there's male and female. He says marriage is a lifelong covenant between one male and one female. Second truth from God-designed marriage is that marriage is to be a covenant relationship between one man and one woman a covenant relationship, an unconditional covenant relationship, different from a contract relationship. We live in a world where all of us have contractual relationships. If you use spectrum for your internet, that's a contractual relationship. What does that mean? Well, it means that there's certain stipulations each party has to meet, that they provide you internet and you provide them a payment. If either party ceases to do that, you can break the contract. If they don't provide the service, you can cancel and you can move on to another. AT&T, Verizon, whatever it is, those are contractual relationships. Marriage was not designed to be a contractual, hey, if you do your part, then I'll do my part, and then we'll stay together. Marriage was designed to be a lifelong covenant, unconditional covenant that only ends in death. Sadly, our world, as it relates to marriage, often thinks of marriage contractually. And here's what I mean, probably different than you imagine, because it doesn't look like the relationship with Spectrum, but it looks like a contractual relationship built on love. That people think, hey, the reason why you get married is because you've fallen in love. The reason why you get a divorce is you have fallen out of love. I'm no longer in love. That, if that's the basis of a marriage, is contractual because it is dependent on the stipulation of an emotion being there. Now, let me be clear. I want every marriage in this room to be hot and heavy, ignited with passion. But that is not the basis or falling in love or falling out of love, biblically speaking, is not a rationale for having a marriage or not having one. That's contractual. Marriage is not contractual, biblically. It is a covenant relationship. And Jesus is hitting on some hard truths and 
Let me just say a side note. As it relates to this idea of love, that's a relatively, not only is it contractional, it's incredibly recent line of thinking. As historians have documented, for most of human history, the basis for which people would get married was not the feeling of romantic love. Why do I say that? This comes from a secular author named Stephanie Kuntz, who wrote a marriage book called Marriage, A History, says this, until incredibly recently, marriage was something too vital of an institution to be relied on solely on the basis of something as irrational as love. In fact, in the early 1960s, listen to this, a full 76% of women said they would be willing to marry someone they didn't love. By the 1980s, that number had dramatically changed. In the 1980s, 86% of American men and 91% of American women said they would not marry someone they did not have the presence of romantic love for. Dramatic swing. 76 said, man, I would marry, even if there wasn't all those feelings there. By the 20 years later, now almost 90% or 91% said they would not marry without the presence of love. She continues, it was the generation that came to age during the 60s and 70s that rejected companionate marriage. They began to pursue something else. They didn't really want to, or they didn't merely want a spouse. They wanted a soul mate. Even this idea is relatively recent. And again, I hope every marriage is marked by love and romance, but it's not the basis for getting married or staying married. I mentioned Jesus covers some hard truths. And I just want to say, as we look at divorce and that topic, man, if that is a part of your story, God is not done. And any shame that you feel is certainly not my heart, and I don't think it's Christ's. There's also no marriage in here that he cannot restore and rewrite and resurrect. It's what God does. He does it over and over and over. And maybe you had that a part of your story and you've been remarried and wonder, is this saying this marriage is cursed? No. But Jesus is elevating and trying to align our understanding with how it was designed, how he designed marriage to be. Well, let me look back at the things that he mentions. He says, haven't you read in response to when can you get a divorce, he said, God made them male and female and he takes these two and they become one. Therefore, what God has joined together and let no one separate. It's as though you take these two liquids and if I pour them together, and I was asked somebody in this room, hey, will you take this and put it back into blue and red? You'd say, it's impossible. Jesus says some really profound things where they're asking, hey, is it permissible? And Jesus says, God's design is that it wouldn't be possible. His design would be this lifelong covenant relationship between one man and one woman. His audience was so staggered, I wish we had time to go into all of it, that at the end of his teaching, where he says, hey, yeah, Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of heart. In order to protect women, he permitted that, but it was not so from the beginning. God's heart was never that divorce would take place. And at the end of Jesus' teaching, his disciples respond in a way that is telling of how his audience heard it, of how shocked they were that Jesus would say that teaching about marriage. His disciples basically say, if that's the case, this lifelong union, it's better to not get married. And Jesus doesn't do what maybe you would think he would do of jump in and go, no, marriage is amazing. It's incredible. I mean, you know, it's the best. He didn't correct it at all. He basically says, let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he walks off. <laughs> He's saying, 
God designed it to be this lifelong gift. And let me hit again. Man, if your story doesn't include that elevated design, God is not done with you. If your story right now includes your marriage fraying, it is not too late and God is not done. And he can take those frays and rewrite your story and form a marriage ministry out of you and your spouse. As dark and separated and painful as it feels like. That's what he does. He does it over and over and over. We've got stories all over our body because he raises people from the dead and he raises marriages back to life. But Jesus' point is just in the incredible design that God has. At City Bridge, let me give our stance. Before I do, let me clarify one thing. If you're in the room and you're experiencing or you're listening online, abuse inside of your marriage, God's design is not that you take there, sit there and take physical abuse. You should raise your hand. You should communicate with us. You should call 911 in certain certain situations. So I'm not saying, hey, just sit and take it. And if that is a part of your story, we'd love to help. And whether that's today or you can email pastoralcare at citybridgechurch.org, we would love to help. But at the same time, God is saying his design is this lifelong covenant relationship, unconditional. Our stance at CityBridge is that if you are divorced to your spouse and seek to remarry, we will not, if she is still unmarried or the spouse that you divorced is not married and is still alive, we will not do the wedding because we don't want to put a wedge in the ground and do what Jesus said, let man not separate what God has brought together. And if I did that wedding and she was still unmarried, I just took away any chance of reconciliation together because she's single and she's still alive. So there is hope and there is still that chance. Are we saying that sin every single time? No, we're just saying as it relates to the conviction of our leadership and elders, that's where we land. But no matter your story, there's so much grace and love, compassion, God is not angry or done with anybody here, but that's where we align. It's also why we don't think same-sex marriage is a thing because Jesus said it's between one man and one woman. So that would be like saying, hey, is there such thing as a square circle? No, by definition, it doesn't fit the definition. And we can add laws and the Supreme Court can change and give their opinions. But we say in the beginning, God created marriage and his design would be a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. Now, finally, marriage by design has different roles. And so if I have not offended everyone in the room thus far, I would like to successfully do that by covering God's design for different roles in marriage and covering how it's a beautiful design when one man, one woman come together and live out and embrace and pursue that design. So finally, marriage by design has different roles for the man and woman. What some examples, Adam was created first to work. Adam, before Eve ever existed, Adam was told to work the garden. Am I saying that women can't work? Of course not. I mean, you read through Proverbs 31, that girl was a hustler. She would have had 18 different Etsy side hustles going on <laughs> and her own home business that she's running. But God did create the man to work and to provide to lead, uh, another role that God gave distinctly, again, man and woman, equal in value, but distinct in their roles, is that women alone can have children. 
Despite what 2023 has to say, it is only women who can give birth to children. God created these different roles. One of the roles that he gave to Adam was to lead male, it's called male headship, but it's basically male spiritual leadership. That Adam was created first. That's reflective of male leadership. The woman is made from the man. God could have made them both at the same time. He takes her from the man, male headship, male leadership. The woman is named by the man, male leadership. The woman is brought to the man, male leadership. Romans chapter five, Paul would later point out that when sin was introduced, it came through Adam. He was responsible. That God designed, and this is not man's rank, it's the different roles that God created that are to come together and complement one another and in doing so provide this beautiful design and reflection of it to our world. Now, to make sure I offend everyone, I'd like to talk about submission. Yeah, nervous laughter, awesome. There's a lot of abuse and a lot of misunderstanding and confusion around this idea. And so I wanna just cover what God says, not for the sake of being provocative, but because in the New Testament, Paul goes into marriage and he's unpacking what it looks like in the context of marriage and he gives more of God's design and it includes submission. It includes more than just submission of wives to husbands. It's broader than that. And I just want to look and then after covering and explaining what he's saying, look at some practical applications as it relates to what this means. But what catches us off guard is not what would have caught his original audience. Here's what I mean. In Ephesians chapter five, verse 21, Paul brings up the topic of submission. So hang with me and lean in to make sure you hear what I am and not what I am saying and what I'm not saying. Paul says this, submit to one another, talking to the entire church, out of reverence for Christ. He says, everybody in the family of God have a posture of deference to one another, not because they deserve it, but the motivation is reverence for Christ. Have a posture of submitting, prioritizing, sacrificing, putting needs of other people before yourself, not because they deserve it, but the motivation for all of these is because of reverence for Christ. The church is to be a submission competition, constantly putting the needs of other people in front of ourselves. And then he brings up marriage. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Submit yourselves to your own husbands, not submit to men, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as you do to the Lord. For the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. Now, if y'all will leave that verse, the previous one up for a second, verse 22. This is understandably a verse that makes a lot of people uncomfortable and kind of ruffles feathers. I mean, it's a very un-American verse in general of like submitting in general just does something against the ethos of America. And we, we we're literally founded on a revolution of the king saying, submit, and we saying, no, take that, redcoats. And yet, I wanna leave this up because despite it making people uncomfortable, it would not have made the first century church uncomfortable at all. That the response that we have to this reading, wives, submit yourself to your husband, we attach that to value. It has nothing to do with value. God is laying out a design and roles to play. But the first century, when they would have read this, the church in Ephesus, they would not have had the response of like, uh-uh. They would have said, wives, submit to your husband. Yeah, duh. Why do I say that? Because it was literally written into the law at that time. There was something in Rome that was called patria potestas, 
Roman law stated that men had complete jurisdiction over their homes, their household, their children, their wives. Wives were seen as property inside of Roman law, that men had every right. Wives could not own property. They could not vote. They did not have the rights that Jesus, as we covered a couple weeks ago, would go on a mission to communicate to the world, men and women are equal in God's sight. They have equal value because they're made in God's image. But his original audience wouldn't have had ruffled feathers at that at all. He just said, duh. In fact, there was a Roman senator who wrote at the time that if a husband catches his wife, this is from Cato, the Roman senator, if a wife is caught in adultery by her husband, the husband has the right to kill her. If the husband is caught in adultery by the wife, she does not have the right to lay a finger on him. I mean, the reason why we bristle at this is, again, we're going back to, we equate it with equality. The scripture is emphatically clear that men and women are created equal. That would not have at all shocked the first century. What would have shocked the first century is what came next. Verse 25. The same emotional response people would have today towards submit is what they would have had then to this. I'll explain why I say that. Husbands, love your wives. At a time where men thought, I have no obligation to my wife. She has every obligation to me. Paul says, no, 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 you're a Christian. This is called Christian marriage. Here's what it looks like to be a husband in a Christian marriage. Husbands, love your wives. And if that wasn't enough, he gets real specific. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now remember, this is to the Ephesian men or the men in Ephesus who are husbands. They're Christian. They understand the story of Christ. I mean, they're reading it and Paul just laid out, hey, just as Christ loved the church and gave him, they're immediately going, hey, I know this story. I know how this story ends. It ends with a cross and somebody being killed. And Paul says, that's how you're to love your wife, to sacrificially lay your life down and prioritize her above yourself. He continues in verse 28, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. Remember, it's one flesh. He's arguing, as we'll see, from one flesh. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for the body just as Christ does the church, for we're members of his body. For this reason, quotes Genesis 2, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Again, Paul goes back, hey, love and prioritize. Sacrificially die to yourself to love your wife. He makes it incredibly clear. And so let me... Let me make it really simple for those of us who are husbands, the responsibility that God and Paul just laid out. Not easy, but simple, at least a goal to pursue. That husbands, you're to take all of your work, preferences, wants, sports teams, hobbies, dreams, put those all together and then put your wife in front of them. That she comes before all of those. He makes it incredibly hard to miss it. You as a husband are called to sacrificially lay down your life, just like Jesus went to a cross that you would be willing to lay down all, die to yourself to put her before your needs. Now, let me give another layer and just go into a little bit more practical on this idea of submission and husbands. In our home, uh, if my wife and I are in a disagreement and not aligned, so let's use uh, the example of, she wants to get a silly example, but she wants to get a minivan and I don't think we should, we can afford a minivan right now. And so, but she's like, yes, we can. And I think we should get a minivan. I don't feel okay with that or I have significant pause. I've got a couple options. I can either just go, hey, woman, submit. We're not getting a van, enjoy the Tahoe, it's gonna be fine. Or I can go, 
my wife has the spirit of God. Something is not aligned and we both have the spirit and yet I have pause on this decision. So I'm not just gonna say you're wrong and I'm off. I wanna at least go, man, maybe God is leading us to get a minivan. And so because we're not aligned, we're gonna hit pause and we're gonna widen the circle to our community group and let them speak into that and get other advisors. That's the way I can lead my family. Not just saying submit, which is never, here's why just, hey, submit should never be a card that you play. Because the Bible doesn't say, husbands, tell your wives to submit. It says, husbands, sacrificially die to yourself and love your wife. It says, wives, submit yourself to your husband. It doesn't give the crossover and overlap for you to go, hey, you have to submit to me. It says, wives, hey, submit, come underneath. And I'm gonna explain what that means. And husbands, sacrificially die to yourself and love your wife. And so one of the reasons we hit so much on community is for you to have other people in your circle, to widen it too when you guys get stuck. Young married men, as it relates to sacrificially serving, this means, especially in the stage where we are of trying to keep head above water and young kids. And if she's up cleaning, you're up cleaning. If she's doing dishes, you're doing dishes. If she is changing diapers, you're helping change the diaper, that you sacrificially serve and care and prioritize your wife and her needs, that you don't see yourself as here to advance your golf game. That is such a small, pathetic thing to give your entire life to. And I'm not picking on golf. I think golf is great and love it as much as the next guy. Yet if you're playing so much golf that it's impacting your marriage, you may need to stop playing golf. How do I know if I'm playing too much golf? You probably should ask your wife, am I playing too much golf? They're typically pretty good at indicating or telling whatever the hobby is. That God has put you to lead and sacrificially love and serve her. Wives, as it relates to submission, one way that you can help and support your husband is by speaking up on ways that he can better support you. To be vocal, that just as you probably know, but may forget, men have a real tough time reading your mind. And you think that we know what you mean and we think we know what you actually want and desire. And the truth is, there's a good chance he does not know. And you can communicate, hey, I think we need to go on more date nights or I think we need more, or I need more help with blank. I need more help with blank to communicate and to speak and to move towards one another. Not let resentment and bitterness drive wedges between you and your spouse. They're the most important human relationship that you have and speaking up and communicating with your spouse. For anyone who's married, this applies to all of us who are, to pray for your spouse. There's ways that you see God needs to grow and take ground and to pray, to faithfully communicate those truths or what you see, but to also just pray for your spouse. Are you praying for your spouse? When's the last time you prayed for your spouse? How often are you praying for your spouse? The most important person in your life. Secondly, to pursue and prioritize one another. Through dating, through cherishing, through whatever that looks like in your stage of life. Like maybe you're at the stage where you're an empty nester and you can go on three date nights a week. Good for you, you go. Maybe you're in a stage where you do have young kids and you're like, man, we just can't, that, we can't make it work right now. And for you, it's like date night looks like kids are down. We're just gonna sit on the back porch or whatever apartment and we're just gonna talk and communicate and move towards one another. We're gonna prioritize pursuing one another that no matter what stage that you can, and no matter how much money you have, you can do this. And God designed it to be that way that you would pursue and care for one another. Also, as a barrier to work through, for a lot of this to happen in the room, there's a lot of bitterness that is getting in the way of a lot of marriages. 
and the resentment that has built up over time. And it's, if I knew your story, I would probably say, man, that's entirely fair. And you have to choose. I'm going to forgive. I'm choosing to forgive, to work through those hurts, to forgive them, to move towards them. Billy Graham was asked, or his wife was asked, what makes for a good marriage? You guys have been married a long time. She said, two great forgivers. Because every marriage is composed of two great sinners. And to choose to forgive. Now, let me cover single people, and I'm going to wrap this up. Single people in the room. As it relates to what you're looking for, you need to have a death grip on God's design for marriage. That your focus is not on what kind of curves does she have, but what kind of character does he or she have. The ladies, if you're going to date somebody, the scripture says that you're to follow him. You need to make sure if you're going to follow him that you know who is he following. Is it his own desires and preferences or is it Jesus? Because you don't want to follow a man who's not going to follow Christ and follow Christ's example of laying down his life. And as you enter in, you want to make sure you're not going to date anybody that doesn't have a death grip on what God's design for marriage is. Lifelong covenant between two people, not focused on themselves, but focused on serving Christ and in serving one another. That you understand that ultimately they cannot satisfy your heart. God can. That people get into relationships and they think, oh man, this, I want this person to fill a hole inside of me. And they were never intended to fill that hole. Only God can fill that hole. And getting married or having a dating relationship is not going to satisfy that. These are one of my favorite inventions Apple has ever had. They're called AirPods, in case you've been living under a rock. AirPods <laughs> are interesting in that they consist really of three things. They've got a right ear, a left ear, and a case. You know what's interesting about these two different ear AirPods is they're different. One is made for the right ear, one is made for the left. They got a lot of similarities. They look very similar, but they're also distinct in the way that they were fashioned and created. What's further interesting is that if this AirPod has zero battery life left or 50% battery life left, and this has 100, I cannot transfer that battery life just by putting them together, touching them or making it work. It wasn't created to pass that on, to fill what's lacking in this AirPod. No matter how much I wish that it was, it simply won't work. Why? Because it has to be placed into a case in whose image it was crafted in order to recharge, receive additional life. And the same is true in the context of love and dating and relationships. No matter how much you would want that husband or wife or person to fill that hole, there is a hole that God has placed that only he can satisfy. And the best way that you can be married someday or experience life in marriage is by having a deep connection to that source of life and love, that God would be the source that through you flows and you're serving your spouse, not because you're hoping they fill something inside of you, but because you have been filled and received Christ in a way that leads and overflows into loving your spouse. It was designed to be like that. Finally, Marriage by design is the most important human relationship. It's a covenant between one man and one woman. Has God given rules? And finally, is a big deal to God. And we learn in this passage why. Because marriage is a metaphor. Earthly human marriage is a metaphor is that it points to something so much bigger. At the very end of this passage, Paul says this, I read it at every wedding I've ever done, and it stands out every single time. He quotes Genesis and says, for this reason, 
A man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. Two become one, that is profound. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. And Paul says marriage is so much bigger and meant to reflect so much more than just one man and one woman together. It is meant to be a reflection of God's covenantal love with his bride, the church. So no wonder he's so passionate about the body of Christ reflecting that unending, unbreakable love and covenant that one man come in together because it reflects and points to what marriage is ultimately about, which is Jesus' relationship with his bride, the church. Now, I started covering this message with talking about weddings, and I want to close talking about another wedding. Weddings on earth between one man and one woman are in some ways a foretaste or reflection of the future wedding Revelation tells us will happen between Christ and his bride, the church, which is the body of Christ. Earthly weddings, though, have a pretty sharp distinction. On the day of every wedding that I've ever done, the bride looks as beautiful as she has ever and probably will ever for the rest of her life. The guy puts on a suit, the girl goes to work. She's putting ribbons in the hair, tackle box of paint going on her face. She is just going full send. I am gonna make sure everything is prim and proper and everything beautiful. And the doors open, the husband sees the most beautiful addition of his wife he'll ever see. And on that day he says, I choose you. Jesus also has a bride, that's Christ. That's everyone who says, I trust in Jesus as my savior. I receive him as my Lord, my savior. His death and resurrection payment for me. They're part of the body of Christ. And yet his decision to choose his bride did not take place on the best day of their life. He didn't choose looking at everything beautiful and amazing that exists in your life and exists in my life and say, I choose you. He did quite literally the opposite. He chose or chose knowing everything broken in your life, every sin in this room, every sin in my heart, every sin that has ever taken place on your worst day. And he looks and says, I choose you. So no wonder when it comes to that covenant, he is passionate about the body of Christ reflecting. Marriage is about so much more than just an earthly relationship. It's meant to point to what marriage is ultimately about. It's just Christ and his love for his bride, the church. It was designed that way. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.